You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. While I was rushing downward to the lowland, before mine eyes did one present himself, who seemed from long-continued silence hoarse. When I beheld him in the desert vast, have pity on me, unto him I cried, whiche'er thou art, or shade, or real man. He answered me, not man, man once I was, and both my parents were of Lombardy, and Mantuans by country, both of them. Subulio was I born, though it was late, and lived at Rome under the good Augustus, during the time of false and lying gods. A poet was I, and I sang that just, son of Anchises, who came forth from Troy, after that Ilion the superb was burned. But thou, why goest thou back to such annoyance? Why climbst thou not to the Mount Delectable, which is the source and cause of every joy? Now art thou that Virgilius and that fountain, which spreads abroad so wide a river of speech. I made response to him with bashful forehead. O of the other poets' honor and light, avail me the long study and great love that have impelled me to explore thy volume. Thou art my master, and my author thou. Thou art alone the one from whom I took the beautiful style that has done honor to me. Behold the beast for which I have turned back, do thou protect me from her, famous sage, for she doth make my veins and pulses tremble. To say lo mio maestro e lo mio autore, to say colui da chio tolsi lo bello stilo che m'ha fatto onore. Si. Benissimo. The, uh, this, of course, uh, Stephen, and thank you for reading it, is the... Uh, famous passage at the beginning of Dante's Commedia, that is the, uh, it's from Inferno. Uh, poor, uh, poor Dante is wandering lost uh, in this strange deserted place, and he doesn't know where he is or how he got there. And of course, as he learns from, uh, from the poet Virgil, who, had, who he has just confronted, he learns that uh, uh, Dante's beloved Beatrice, now in heaven, has picked Virgil as the one person who can rescue Dante from the moral and spiritual perils into which he's fallen. And by this, of course, he was clearly uh, philandering on the one hand, chasing chasing women, but also is uh, uh, consumed with rage at, at the treatment that he had received from the Florentines who exiled him without a single good reason. So the, uh, a good question then is, why, why did Dante, uh, who is after all the, among the most serious Christian writers who's ever lived, why did he pick a pagan, Virgil, as his guide through hell and purgatory? So that's uh, any any idea? Well, probably he's he's our best bridge if we're thinking about Christianity and classical culture. Doctor, I mean, he may have been anticipating our podcast all these <laughs> years in the future and may have thought, well, this would be a great topic for Dr. Fleming and Stephen, and so he did that for us. Yes. The, um, it, it, is, um, it is interesting that we, we have this idea, and it's partly true, that with the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, 
that is uh, usually dated to 476 AD when Otto Wacker, the uh, uh, had staged his coup d'etat and sent the imperial insignia back to Constantinople saying they didn't need it in Italy anymore. Uh, usually after that is dated the uh, the disappearance of classical literature and the standards of literature and we and uh, man falls western man falls into this dark age now this is partly true of course it takes a long while i mean still in the 100 years later boethius well 80 years later boethius is still writing and there are learned people and there are people who can write decent latin but one thing that does not disappear and that is the appreciation for virgil Virgil, from the, even before um, the publication, that is the release of manuscripts of the Aeneid, even by the time uh, Virgil was on his deathbed, he was regarded as the greatest poet in the Latin language. And this was largely on the strength of his not quite completed Aeneid. Uh, his poem about uh, the wanderings of uh, the Trojan prince who ends up coming to Italy and begetting a line of people who found Rome. And this was uh, felt uh, before, even before Virgil's death, even before they were circulating manuscripts. His friends would have passages and the emperor received parts of it and, and it was read in the emperor's presence. Uh, and in the presence of the emperor's sister, of uh, all of uh, uh, all of this was going on, and so even before it was generally available, even before it was taught in a single school, the Aeneid was regarded as the great masterpiece of Latin prose and poetry. You know, it didn't matter. And this went on, and it went on until oh, I would say about the time you were being born, Stephen. That is. That is, uh, yeah, Virgil and the Aeneid were the, the quintessential work of Western literature. And certainly in the so-called Dark Age or, the, or the, the Middle Ages, which I call the Christian Age, throughout that whole period, there was never a time when people who could read were not reading Virgil. You know, even uh, pious Christians like St. Augustine, who sometimes take Virgil to task, Augustine admits at one point that he was used to reading big passages of Virgil every day of his life. And this is true in the monasteries. It's true in the schools and the seminaries. If you could read Latin, you read Virgil. And even if you couldn't read Latin, you knew the stories in Virgil, a lot of uh, mythology, uh, for about the Frankish nation, for example, is borrowed straight out of them. Now, um, and this is this is sort of an interesting question because you know, as Christians, they were supposed to reject all of the pagan religion, pagan gods and goddesses, and there were, of course, theologians who said you shouldn't get too attached uh, to any ancient writers. But often in their discussions, these very people are quoting Virgil because they can't help themselves. And this is from the time of Augustine and Ambrose uh, at the court of Charlemagne. And, of course, with the rebirth of, of humane learning that took place in the so-called Renaissance, Virgil, uh, Virgil is a paramount writer of great importance. And so it is only natural for, uh, for Dante looking around at who would be an appropriate guide. Well, it should be a poet, because Dante's a poet. Uh, and it should be somebody who can lead you to through the mysteries. But and so and of course in the case of the first two parts of, 
of Dante, of Dante's great work, the the, the comedy. Um, they're they're not in heaven, and so you 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 don't really you don't need somebody who has been uh, been a Christian to do it. All over, if you look if you look through Europe, like uh, the, the churches, medieval churches in France or Italy or Germany, you'll see. Uh, Paintings of depictions of Virgil alongside of Isaiah and David. David because David was a poet and singer, and Isaiah because they regarded Virgil as a prophet. And this, there are all sorts of funny things. For example, he he was Virgil was felt that uh, to have been uh, some sort of magician. That uh, if you wanted to find out your future, you would go through something called the Sortes Virgiliane. That is, you would sort of flip through a, a manuscript of uh, the Aeneid, put your finger down, and and there would be whatever whatever wherever you lit upon that that would have some message for you. It's interesting, you know. There's a there's a famous popular novel of the 19th century where. The same thing is done, but with the text of uh, Robinson Crusoe, and that's Wilkie Collins' The uh, The Moonstone, uh, a charming, uh, one of the first re- sort of uh, romance thrillers that w- that solves a mystery. So uh, he- here we, so th- this that's the simple answer. Well, and he's not he's not the only character we have. Obviously, we'll also see Cato in Purgatorio, yes. and it maybe as you were as you were explaining. Uh, why we would see Virgil, I was also thinking of the Sistine Chapel ceiling, which which is not my favorite for any number of reasons, but I'm thinking of the Sibyl that we see there. So yes. uh, where we have blatantly classical figures right up against Christian types. Um, so we're it's it's a it's something obviously we've been continuing to explore on this podcast, but even within uh, the Commedia, this is not uh, Virgil's not the only character that we see. No, no, and uh, and of course uh, later on we meet Statius, and Statius gets to be in heaven because he um, it was believed that he was a secret Christian convert, and very few scholars believe that today. But they, of course, they don't believe it. <laughs> they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe Gustav Mahler was a uh, was a convert from Judaism to the Catholic Church. So uh, in the case of Statius, I simply don't know. Dante certainly believed uh, that Statius. Uh, was a Christian because that's what uh, everybody did believe. There's a there's an interesting Italian book that was published about a hundred years ago or less about eighty years ago by a scholar named Comparetti, and Comparetti has a four hundred page book. It's very uh, on the image of Virgil, you know, Virgil's afterlife, you know, after he dies, what happens and how he becomes the standard for uh, Latinity, how he becomes the the great writer, and as as uh, People had left, there were fewer and fewer people in the West who could read Greek by, say, 600 A.D., uh, except for southern Italy. There's, there's very few. And and so Virgil becomes the great, the great poet because they didn't have access to Homer or to Sophocles or to any of the, uh, uh, the Greek classics. And so Homer becomes a kind of pagan Bible. And uh, the there's... I'm sorry, I, I, I think I said Homer. Virgil becomes a kind of uh, uh, 
pagan source of inspiration. The 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 Sibyls, which uh, you mentioned, they of course they were supposed to be able to tell the future. There were Sibylline books that you were supposed to be able to consult, uh, and these were the utterances of these prophetesses at Cumae in uh, in uh, southern southern Italy. Virgil too, as I hinted when talking about uh, fortune telling with Virgil, Virgil was felt to have had uh, have been uh, had prophetic inspiration, and that's what we're going to talk about today uh, as we get on with our discussion because we're going to discuss his famous fourth eclogue in which he seems to uh, make a very important prediction, the mo- uh, predicting the most important event that's happened uh, in the human race. You so uh, again you you're mentioning Homer and we've talked about him uh, several times in in the past on this series and I think I've been reading some Cicero as of late and we they often call Lactantius the Christian Cicero is it fair to say that Dante's the the Christian Homer Christian Virgil or would you say uh, a combination of both Yeah that's a, that's an interesting thing by the way what a <laughs> it's a real blow to Christianity to have Lactantius as the <laughs> Christian Cicero, because what a complete fool uh, that man was. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> I don't know. If it's, is it more of an insult to Christianity or more to Cicero? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, believe me, I think Cicero can survive that. That that's a that's a hard blow. Did you ever read uh, Evil and Waugh's novel uh, on the um, the Mother of Constantine? No, it's just called Helen. No. It's quite an interesting uh, book. I mean, obviously, Evelyn Watt knows a lot less, a lot less history than, than either one of us does. But um, uh, it's quite interesting because he portrays Helen, the mother of Constantine, as a hard-headed British woman, which she undoubtedly was English or British, but is but not not Anglo-Saxon, but but old Celtic British, and um, she doesn't like nonsense. And so they, she meets Lactantius, you know, Constantine, and he gets this quality from her, and and um, they meet Lactantius, who is just a, a, a baloney artist. I mean, <clears throat> constantly rhetorical, hyperbole, and you can't really believe anything the man says. But what, of course, being English, uh, Helen is convinced that Christianity is not just a beautiful story, which is how Lactantius tells it. It's not a beautiful story. It is true. And so in, in the novel, that's why she goes to the Middle East, she goes to Jerusalem, because she knows she can find the, the, the cross and the place where Jesus was buried, because she is convinced that it's an historical fact. It's quite an interesting, it's, it's a pretty good book, it's not one of his best books, it's a pretty good book, but it, it does bring out one really important thing about Christianity, is that is, it's not just a beautiful story, it's not like Santa Claus. You know, it's it's it. We we believe it to be true. Similarly, it's a nice parallel to Heinrich Schliemann, who was this uh, very unlettered uh, German merchant who made a lot of money, but he loved he loved studying Greek and he loved Homer, and he would pay people in bars to recite Homer to him. And uh, he was convinced that the Trojan War was literally happened the way Homer told the story. And so (laughs) he then went, so he took all this money and he went and he tried to find, well, where's the traditional site of Troy? Now, people said, look, there was no Troy. It was all a story about northern Greece and then they transferred it later. There's no, none of this ever happened. But he couldn't be deterred. And he went over there and he, you know, there's this mound near a town called Hisarlik. 
So he went there, stuck his spade in the ground, and the rest is history. He found seven levels of Troy, and yes, it was a very rich, flourishing uh, city, and uh, I think I think uh, it's either there or maybe when he dug up Mycenae, which everybody also told him didn't exist, that he there's a picture of his beautiful Greek wife dressed with all all of the gold and and silver and brilliance that uh, of the of the uh, ancient costume jewelry. So the thing it's 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 a strange thing, but Christianity is compared to it, which I don't regard as a religion except in certain formal aspects. Christianity claims to be the truth. And 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 uh, this is this is why there's a certain amount, a certain degree of, of pragmatism and practicality in Christianity that is absent from uh, most religious systems. Anyway, back to even back to, even even from the religion of peace, Doctor Fleming. <laughs> yes, even from the religion of peace, because you know that's just the the, the um, you know it's. Uh, I don't want to offend any Mormons, but reading the Koran is a lot like reading the Book of Mormon. It's just somebody making it up as he goes along. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's inconsistent, it's it's crazed. It try the, the Koran tries to sound like the Old Testament, but it just succeeds in uh, in uh, sounding foolish. Now the truth is that after a thousand years of intelligent Islamic scholars and theologians, when they got through with their, uh, that you you can be an intelligent person and an honest person, and if you accept what the what the scholars tell you about about the Quran and about the life of Muhammad, it begins to make sense. But why that it it, it really to take it just on its own, just a stranger picking up the Quran, usually pretty hor- hor- horrified by what they read. I can't imagine why, but. Uh, <laughs> um, well, take us to this time period of, of Virgil, Dr. Fleming, because we've, we've covered lots of different parts of Roman history. And yep. if you give us a sense of what Virgil's time period was and, and how he was writing, that might give us more insight back into yeah. Dante. Yeah. Uh, Virgil comes along. He is born during the, uh, the last of the great, uh, the period of civil wars. That is, Italy, uh, Roman Italy and the whole Roman Empire was in a state of collapse starting in the 2nd century BC powerful the the uh, powerful leaders rose up some appealing to the commercial classes some to the disenfranchised lower classes some to the traditional senatorial aristocracy and each each one of these guys tries to make himself ruler of the Roman world and bypassing more or less bypassing the, the, the traditional institutions of the Roman Republic. And, of course, the names are famous. Marius uh, was perhaps among the most unfortunate of these. Sulla actually was a pretty good statesman. But then, of course, come the last three great dynasts, uh, Marcus Crassus, Gnaeus uh, uh, Pompeia, Pompeius, and uh, Julius Caesar. And in the end, Caesar and... Um, Caesar and Pompey have a fight to the finish, which in which Caesar wins only to be assassinated not too long after. So, and then of course wars break out among Julius Caesar's successors, namely his great and quite brilliant lieutenant Mark Antony, and uh, and the uh, and his adopted son, who is actually a great nephew, Octavius who takes the name Octavianus and eventually is given the title Augustus. 
So it's during this terrible period in which armies are raging across Italy, land is being confiscated, you know, Cicero is, uh, is murdered and his, his hands and his head are put, you know, set up at the Roman Forum so that people could stare at it. It's a, it's a brutal period and it's a period in which, uh, people all over Italy, including northern Italy, where, where Virgil is born. Virgil is born in, near the town of uh, what is now Mantova, ancient Mantua. And uh, Mantova was a largely uh, Celtic area. That is an area which was originally part of uh, Cisalpine Gaul, and which had uh, Roman colonists who came in. So it was during this horrible period that uh, Virgil came up, but apparently a lot of the farm territory, uh, farm, uh, farmland and, and estates in the Po Valley were confiscated to be given to Mark Antony's veterans. And, uh, and uh, at what point, if, we are, if we're correctly reading Virgil's poetry, he went to Rome and uh, got himself ensconced in fashionable circles, with people like Asinius Pollio, who was one of uh, Caesar's uh, officers, with uh, and then with Mycenas, the senior uh, advisor to Augustus, and then with uh, Augustus the Princeps, the the, uh, the the first man of the Roman state himself, and appears to have been everything seems to have been smooth sailing after that. But the 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 the, the point to take from this. Uh, <laughs> baseball card set of facts about the, the, the late Roman Republic, it was a time of civil war, a time of great injustice, a time of insecurity, a time when you really didn't know what to expect. Imagine, uh, imagine Germany in the 1920s, and you'll, you'll get some, some idea, economic collapse, uh, of the of the, uh, in the, in the Roman agricultural sector, a moral collapse, and so when when Octavian, a very unpromising lad indeed, he was ugly, scrawny, sickly, and, uh, and immoral and unreliable. Uh, and for him to become the ruler, well, he was at the, at the great battle that decided the Battle of Actium uh, with his fleet against that of Cleopatra and Antony. You know, he was sick in his bunk because he, you know, he's a delicate constitution. And the truth is that the kid grew up under the guidance of his uh, friends and his wife. He grew up to be a, a very reasonable, honorable, and noble statesman, contrary to any, what anybody expected. He was, uh, he was regarded as a butcher and a monster as a, as a, as a 20-year-old. So, this miracle is taking place in which there is a moral restitution, a restitu uh, recovery, a recovery uh, in the arts. All, it, it, is, it is the golden age of, of, of Latin literature. All you have to do is to go to the Arapacis, the altar of peace in Rome, and look at, obviously the sculptors are Greek, but look at the nobility of conception of the, what, what Italy is supposed to be like. I never go to Rome without going there. I don't like the neighborhood. I don't like the kind of the way they've got it set up. I certainly hate the awful uh, building. Uh, but once you're inside the building and you're looking at these sculptures that, uh, that Augustus commissioned, you, you, you are breathing the air of, of Virgil and his, and his world. And a, a world of sanity and of moral order, a world of celebrating the, uh, the, the simple life 
of uh, of the Italians of that day. So this in in into this into this great restoration steps a supremely uh, gifted poet, a very brilliantly educated person, a man who was uh, as philosophical, uh, more interested in philosophy actually perhaps than poetry. We know that. When he finished the Aeneid, his plan was to live in, in, uh, on the Bay of Naples and do nothing but study philosophy for the rest of his life. And well, he, was, he was not an old man. Well, and I, I would say this is probably a time in the Republic stroke empire, whatever we're calling it at this time period, where the upper classes were most interested in philosophy, or at least they were most, most literate. Uh, they had moved past simply... Uh, imitating the Greeks and really tried to grapple with some of these concepts themselves. Yes, that's certainly true. And um, we have uh, there's emerging in the in the in the Roman upper class emerging a great appetite, especially for uh, philosophies that preach self control. We, we've talked a lot about the the Stoics in, in the past. So yes, uh, it is it is that exactly that kind of period. And Virgil is therefore not a uh, not unusual in having these in, these uh, interests. What is unusual, I think, is the depth of study that he was undertaking, uh, since he already had taken on a very difficult uh, profession. That is uh, uh, to be uh, a Latin poet. Latin did not uh, lend itself. The Romans felt uh, to beautiful poetry. It had produced relatively little, even by uh, by the time of Julius Caesar. Early early Latin poetry is frankly pretty crude stuff, both in its in its Latinity, in its structure, its form, its meter. Uh, you finally get to uh, to Terence, the dramatist. He's not a very interesting writer, but he can write he can write smoothly, and so he was always taught to the end of the empire, and even in, through the Middle Ages, Terence was constantly being taught uh, for his stylistic qualities. So along comes Virgil, who is on a, on, a, on a level of using the Latin language on the one hand, and on the other hand, his, uh, his, his versification, and finally, on the third hand, a level of intellectual and moral seriousness, which had not been uh, apparent in poetry in a long time. To step back for just a second, the, the dominant poetry uh, that uh, was influencing uh, Roman poetry was not so much Homer and Greek tragedy as the poetry of Alexandria. Alexandria was, of course, uh, in Egypt. It was founded by the successors of Alexander the Great. It was founded by, and so the Ptolemies created this this sort of Greek kingdom in uh, in Egypt with a, with an Egyptian uh, uh, substratum. But uh, the poets were cosmopolitan, clever, learned, but f- essentially mostly frivolous. The, the great poet was Callimachus. And uh, also Apollonius of Rhodes, whose who's, uh, Argonautica we still have, the story of Jason and the, and the Argonauts in their the search for the Golden Fleece. And even that was felt to be too narrative. They felt, as, they, as Callimachus, the great poet, said, you know, mega biblia and mega cacon. A big, a big book is a big pain, big evil. <laughs> In other words, you should write short, very witty. You know, think, think of Oscar Wilde, or think of the the French and the French esthetes and the English decadence. Everything was ter- polishing the words to 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 uh, to a, a, a brilliant finish, 
but that common people probably couldn't get the point of. And so it is this tradition that uh, that Virgil was educated into, and yet, so he takes the incredible finesse, the incredible cleverness of all this, but then he gradually grows from his earliest poems, written in, in an explicit Alexandrian vein, he grows from that into becoming the writer of the Aeneid, the only epic work of literature that could stand beside uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And and, uh, and Dante, by the way, you asked, what is, what is Dante? Dante is, I think, the most unusual great... Dante's Commedia is the most unusual great book I've ever read. It took me decades to get beyond the surface and to, to begin to appreciate how absolutely uh, marvelous the thing is because it is not written as a continuous story. It, it, it's, it's got hundreds and thousands of little narratives that you're supposed to understand before you read the poem, and so the the real it's a real obstacle to a modern uh, to a modern reader because what Dante regarded as everyday on the street gossip that everybody knows, of course now you have to study for years to try to figure out what it means. That's why I have I've, I have this lecture on uh, which I give on on basically Dante the Florentine gossip. Because once you begin to get all the, the these 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 stories lined up, then you begin to see the pattern and begin to see where 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 he's going ultimately. But uh, anyway, so Dante is very unusual, and an and an ancient an ancient literary public would have burned him alive because what they wanted was form and structure and narrative coherence. And Dante understands this, but he he has other 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 interests. He knows how to tell a story beautifully and convincingly, but it's very, very subtle, and it, it, it is not at all easy for us. Virgil, on the other hand, Virgil knows how to tell stories, knows how to portray characters. He has learned everything virtually that you could learn from studying Homer. Uh, it's clear he studied Euripides carefully, Apollonius Argonautica he studied. So all of these things he has, he has learned from the uh, from uh, all periods of Greek literature, and he's he's learned the perfection of the Alexandrians, but he uh, but he quickly goes beyond that. You know, when you mention those little vignettes, those little stories that we have in the Commedia, Doctor Fleming, I'm reminded there's a statue, there's a bronze statue in the Orsay, which I'm I'm certain is not one of your favorite museums here in Paris, but it's by Carpo, and it's a mm -hmm. Ugolino and his sons. Mm. And whenever I'm with my guests, often of whom, let's say 90, 95% of my guests who come through, who I'm taking through the Orsay, have never read the Commedia, it's the one time that I can tell them a little bit about the story. It doesn't get them interested enough to read <laughs> the Divine Comedy, but it does give them a little bit of an appreciation of Dante. And I thought it might be a good opportunity for us for you to tell one of those little stories that you were say, <laughs> singing the praise of. I, it's, not a, it's not a nice story, but no. I think it's a, it's a helpful insight into, into Dante and, and to give our listeners a little sample of what you're talking about. You know, uh, I'll, I'll, let me put it as Dante would, as a story within a story. It was my first, uh, my first trip to Italy. I was invited to go to a uh, an international conference. It's sort of it's every four years. It's the Olympic Games of classical studies, and uh, it was held in Pisa in I think the year was 1990. So um, I I was uh, I knew very little Italian. I mean I knew enough to order a, a pizza and or whatever, 
and I was I was beginning to study it, and uh, and I took my wife and two older children, and so we we uh, after considerable vicissitudes, we end up in Pisa, actually staying out at the beach. So I go into this conference where I'm to give a paper with uh, Christian Kopp. Actually, we were giving a joint paper that grew out of work in my in my dissertation. So <clears throat> I'm going out to lunch with some people that I had known before, including my former uh, chairman at Chapel Hill, George Kennedy. The uh, one of the great experts on ancient rhetoric. Uh, uh, if you can read the Art of Persuasion in Greece, the uh, uh, his books on Roman rhetoric, Christian rhetoric. It's all it's uh, it's pretty uh, pretty good stuff. So we're walking through uh, to, to find a, a place. They know a place they want to eat, and um, and we're walking through the the uh, the piazza where there is the uh, the the piazza of the of the, the, the cavalieri and the, the where the Ch- Vasari's great church is there and the the scuola normale which was originally uh, built to to, to uh, teach people classics and is now part of the University of Pisa anyway so we we're staying in this gateway and uh, George Kennedy said you you see here this and he, and he points to a plaque. This is the house of Ugolino. Actually, the the real the the the, the tower of Ugolino was actually uh, uh, destroyed, but this is the site of it, and and it was good enough for me that it was the tower. So, and he said it was here. It was here, of course, that the that the the tyrant or the the the, the signore, the lord of Pisa, in a, took refuge with his sons and grandchildren during. The uh, during an, uh, a civil strife during a period of uprising to overthrow Ugolino's power, and so they thought, well, we can we can hold. This was typical in Central Italy. What you do is you have a family tower, it's fortified, and you and your retainers and friends you go there and you fight off the enemy. And Ugolino figured, you know, we can we can withstand a siege for a couple of weeks, and then to his horror, he heard the sound of hammers and nails. And they were, he heard, and of course, this is what Dante describes, uh, the Ugolino's horror as he, he, they're not, they're not going to attack him. They're just sealing up the building and going away. And when, of course, they come back, they find, uh, according to at least, uh, uh, legend, according to the tradition, when they come back, they find some of the grandchildren had been eaten. By uh, by the by the uh, starving adults, and they're all dead by this time anyway. So it, it, it uh, so it, it is a it is a horrifying story. And as the as the years go by, and the more I study, I've made Pisan history a particular hobby, and uh, and uh, it, it it's a fascinating history to read, especially in conjunction with the history of Florence. But um, I, I I tend to be rather sympathetic to Ugolino, but uh, all even the name sounds sinister. Ugolino it just means little Hugo, you know Huey. I guess is what we, it would be in uh, when 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 uh, when we took uh, uh, Father Hugh Barber on one occasion to the Balkans, and uh, the Orthodox monks all called him uh, Hugo Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, it never occurred to me. Of course, Hugh and Hugo are the same name. So uh, back to uh, back round Robin's barn. Back to uh, so so dead dead grandchildren aside, we're back to contemplating philosophy in the countryside. That's right. Uh, so what comes of this? Well, one of the things that happens is his earliest uh, work, Virgil's earliest work, were a set of poems. 
which are usually called the eclogues, sometimes called bucolics. That is, they're explicit imitations of the poet Theocritus. Theocritus was an Alexandrian poet from uh, from Sicily, from, from Syracuse. So he wrote in Dorian Greek dialect, which does not make them easier to read, by the way. And uh, they were they were rather popular uh, in their time. In other words, third century B.C. You know, we're talking about 250 years before Virgil. And so he takes Theocritus as his model and he writes these uh, bucolic poems. Now, Theocritus is a serious poet. And by the way, his, 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 he has a lot more charm. Uh, in these, in, in his character descriptions, there, there, there's a more, more, more good humor, more, more a lot of magic stuff. There's, it's really quite, quite, quite lively. Virgil has a different project. When the, the project is to find a, a, an indirect way of dealing with Italy's crisis. The crisis is economic. The crisis is agrarian. The people are not, not having land to work on. The crisis is moral and spiritual. Uh, and, uh, and all of this is uh, sort of understood by, by, uh, both by Virgil and by, and by the ruler, uh, Augustus. So the first, the first of these eclogues is, uh, is, uh, it's a, it, on the surface, it's quite, you know, simple. You know, uh, a shepherd and a, and a, and a, uh, a farmer and a shepherd meet and they talk about the weather and they talk about this and that. And finally, uh, the, the one is having to go into exile because he's losing his land and he's imagining he's going to have to go to some horrible place like England or North Africa and strangers. An, an impious soldier will eventually hold, his, uh, hold the property. Whereas the other one, uh, Titerus, has uh, has gone to Rome, and there he has put his case before someone he chooses to call a god. He said, because I will always say he is a god because of the nobility of his countenance and the kindness. And this god, namely uh, namely uh, Octavian, the, the ruler, has given him his land back. And so the in 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 the so in the midst of this 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 terrible crisis where everybody's life is being undermined there now is appearing this noble figure of a, of the ruler who is restoring the old italy to what it should be the the, the as the virgil is fond of calling it the Saturn, the land of saturn because once upon a time long long ago uh before uh before uh, jupiter ruled the world uh, or about, but Saturn lived in Italy, and it was a golden age in which people just picked the fruit off the tree. Nobody had to work, and and this is the story, of course, he tells in his next great work, which is the Georgics, which we'll talk about uh, next time. And so, in the eclogues, starting with the first eclogue, what we see, he Virgil is seeing his role in writing these simple poems about rustic life. And the, the affairs of shepherds and shepherdesses, alas, in the second eclogue, is a share be, an affair between shepherd and shepherd. But the less said about that, the better. The but it, it is the crisis of uh, of uh, of Italy and the restoration of Italy that that is his real subject. And this this is um, I can't think of a poet before this 
who uh, could write this way. Now here, clearly, uh, Virgil, for example, knows the text of Hesiod. We know that because he's always quoting Hesiod in his next work, in the Georgics. It's, he's explicitly standing up and taking on taking on the ideas of Hesiod. And again, we'll talk about that uh, uh, in the future. But here, uh, he knows that Hesiod was a shepherd, that he wrote this poetry about how, how to live, about the nature of the, 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 the universe, the, how the gods have ruled it. But also he writes this works and days about the life of the farmer. But it's an, it's an explicit didactic book about how to be a successful farmer and what, what the qualities are. Virgil, on the other hand, has done something totally different. He's taken these sort of charming, somewhat silly, somewhat lighthearted stories about shepherds and shepherdesses and farmers, and he's using them as a vehicle for taking on this much more serious topic, which is which is the the uh, the, the condition of Italy, uh, the condition of the Roman Empire, and and the uh, the program. And I, and I don't think it's at all too much to call it a program, the Augustan program. To restore the Roman world, and this is a. If I don't know how many people uh, saw through uh, Virgil's surface, what they saw was very beautiful poetry. But clearly, these these subjects that come up over and over throughout uh, throughout the eclogues, that is the 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 economic crisis, the the moral moral collapse, the collapse of the farm. So. This this is the overall topic of the eclogues, and this leads us to a discussion of uh, eclogue number four. Now, I'm going to ask you to frame a, a question because I'm going to get up and take five seconds because the book, <laughs> my, my copy of Virgil, uh, uh, is uh, on the other side of the room. Okay. Silence. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm trying to think of what question I would ask, Doctor Flippin. Silence supreme. Not a shriek, not a scream. <laughs> That's not Virgil, by the way. All right. Here we have it. Now uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the fourth eclogue. This uh, was written in 40 BC partly to celebrate the consulship of Asinius Pollio. Uh, and he was one of Caesar's officers. He was then a supporter of Antony. When Antony collapsed, uh, he was approached by uh, Octavius then uh, to, uh, to join his side he did so, but he was always a kind of old-fashioned Roman aristocrat, very much his own man. He refused to kowtow to anybody. He became part of the Augustan establishment, you know, politically, but he was an uncomfortable person to have around because he was somebody who still, you know, cherished some of the ideals of the old republic. It's funny. There were more people on Antony's side who felt that way than there were on uh, on Octavian's side. This is something sometimes uh, not brought out very clearly. So this poem is, uh, which I'll read just in the old, uh, straightforward Loeb translation, uh, who did it? Yeah, H. Rushton Fairclough. 
not not a not a not a great translation, but it's clear. But a great name. <laughs> yes, indeed. Sicilian muses. Let us sing a somewhat loftier strain. Why Sicilian muses? Well, because he's been he's been writing poems in the spirit of Theocritus, who comes from Sicily. So I mean, every, every everything has a point. Not all. Uh, do uh, the orchards please and the lofty tamarisk trees if our song is of the woodland let the woodland be worthy of a council this is you know a typical rhetorical way of saying I'm, 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 I'm elevating the subject so I can talk about my friend Asinius Pollio and by the way it was through Pollio undoubtedly that Virgil got his influence at court got probably through him that he got his land restored now has come the last age of the song of Cumae, that is, the song of the Sibyls. The great line of the centuries begins anew. Well, this sounds like it's, you know, from the, the great seal of the American Republic, you know, <laughs> the, the Novus Ordo Seclorum. Uh, now the virgin returns, the virgin being Astraea, that is, the, goddess, the, the, the starry goddess of justice, because she was the last to leave the earth when, when everything went bad. Now this the virgin goddess of justice returns, the reign of Saturn returns. Now a new generation descends from heaven on high. Only do thou, pure Lucina, uh, that is a, a goddess associated with light and with the moon, now smile on the birth of the child, under whom the iron brood shall first cease, and a golden race spring up throughout the world. Thine own Apollo now is king. Uh, Augustus was very close to uh, to Apollo. He was sort of re- viewed him as his patron. And in thy consulship, Apollo, yea, in thine shall the glorious age begin, and the mighty months commence their march. Under thy sway, any traces of our guilt shall become void and release the earth from its dread. He shall have the gift of divine life, shall see heroes mingled with gods, and shall himself be seen of them and shall sway a world to which his father's virtues have brought peace. So this is, he's forecasting the birth of somebody who has a noble and distinguished father, and that he's going to bring, the human guilt is going to be taken away, the earth will become a place of justice. But for thee, child, shall the earth untilled pour forth as her first lovely gifts, straggling ivy with foxglove everywhere, and the Egyptian bean blended with the smiling acanthus. Uncalled, the goats shall bring home their udders swollen with milk, and the herds shall fear not huge lions. Unasked, thy cradle shall pour forth flowers for thy delight. And it goes on. Um, the, the, when the strength of the years has made thee man, even the trader shall quit the sea nor shall the ship of pine exchange wares. In other words, every land will be self-sufficient. It's a sort of uh, a, a prediction of agrarian autonomy. Now, so you, who is, so the, the, uh, this is 40 B.C. In other words, it's 40, roughly, you know, 40, 44 years before uh, the birth of Christ. And it was, of course, quite natural for Christians later on to believe that that's what he was foretelling the the or the the uh there's endless scholarly debate about who is the child is it just an imaginary thing is it just a mythological device 
The most obvious candidate would be the son born to Asinius Pollio, and this would be unfortunate, yeah, because that son, uh, Asinius Gallus, was an unspoken senator who uh, offended Tiberius, and he always did claim that the poem was about him. Um, other candidates uh, exist. Um, Octavia had recently married Scrobodia, who uh, may have been pregnant at the time. Uh, he was writing the poem. Unfortunately, the child turned out to be a girl, uh, Julia, uh, the daughter whose sexual antics would give Octavian so much grief. Uh, but it would at least would make the point that uh, the child's heroic parent would then be Octavian, the future Augustus. And it would make sense of uh, some of what happens at the end of the poem, that is, heroes mating with goddesses. Uh, this is the story of Anchises, the Trojan prince, who had an affair with Aphrodite, uh, known in Roman as uh, Venus, and their child was Aeneas. And Aeneas is, of course, the ancestor of, uh, through his son, Eulus, or Eulus Ascanius. Aeneas is the ancestor of what famous Roman family? Uh, well, the, Jul the Julian family, of course. Uh, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar, when he was a nobody, w w knew that his ultimate ancestor was were Venus and uh, and uh, Anchises, and that he's descended from Aeneas, the founder of uh, of uh, Roman Italy, and of course through uh, Romulus, etc. So uh, the, the Julian Gaints, the Julian clan, although uh, it was a distinguished patrician family, but they really were sort of second tier by the time Julius was growing up. They, they had some distinguished people, but they weren't one of the more powerful families. So, <clears throat> of course, uh, I, I want people who listen to this podcast to go out and get themselves a copy. Uh, you can uh, the best uh, the best translation. And uh, perhaps which I should have read is the translation of all of uh, all of Virgil done by John Dryden in the late 17th century. Now, this is itself worth uh, a two minute tale because it has direct relevance for our little foundation. Dryden uh, was a Catholic convert under Charles I and uh, and his brother James, who was uh, was an open Catholic. Now, a, a number of people converted uh, under uh, under the encouragement of the Stuarts. However, when when uh, James II was driven off his throne by his daughter and her husband, who was also a nephew of King James. A lot of people said, well, you know, it was fun being Catholic, but that's all over now. And they and they reverted back to the Church of England. Uh, Dryden was not one of those. Dryden, people thought he had just converted for uh, for cynical reasons. And he was the equivalent of poet laureate. He was the he was a, he was subsidized. He had a pension from the crown. This could have continued had he just gone along with the religious change. He refused. And so he was suddenly plunged into poverty. Now, what does a poet do? Well, today you'd get a, you'd get you'd immediately find a different foundation to get a grant from, or you'd find a university to teach in because poets, you know, on book sales, the uh, a good selling poet might make a hundred dollars a year, or two hundred or five hundred. They make some money out of readings. What Dryden Dryden had no such resources, and so what he did is to advertise a book project. 
And the book project was a, tra- a new translation of Virgil. And what he said is, I want you to put up money, <laughs> money down now. In other words, subscribe to this project, and then you'll get a copy of the book when it comes out. And so he went around to various noble people and people with a lot of money and people with not so much money. And some put up a lot of money, some put up a little money. But it's the first it's the first example of this happening historically. And when uh, when I started thinking about uh, how the we have had a similar regime change in the United States in the past 50 years, where we are now, it is uh, it is impossible for a Christian or a traditional conservative. There there are there are think tanks and things but really the truth is the game is over for us. There's no large, there's no decent publishing house. There are no decent universities. There are not even any decent small colleges. Basically, there are a few places that, that you know people like, and I'm not going to say anything against them. But the fact is that we're living in an alien world where we have no res- where all the resources of Hollywood and New York and Washington D.C. all the resources are in the hands of people who would like to see us dead or at least at least silent. So or, yeah, you or at least what working at, as greeters at Walmart. Yes, exactly. And some some of these people, of course, include uh, one's one's uh, one's former supporters. But so what to do? And uh, when I began to realize that my future uh, lay in being what they like to call politely an independent scholar, which is what which is how scholars describe unemployment. It's sort of the equivalent of being a business consultant when you're a businessman. Oh, I I didn't know you got fired. But. and it occurred to me that uh, if we could plan book projects and plan a website and plan, and then with your help plan podcasting, we could uh, we ask people to put up money up front on the str- on the strength of a promise. In Dryden's case, he was the finest poet uh, writing in uh, in English at the time. And by the way, his translation of of Virgil is the finest translation I know of in the English language. It, it stands on its own as a great achievement of English literature. I guess the only parallel would be the King James Bible, which uh, one may have various reserva- theological reservations about, but the majesty of that work and of Cranmer's prayer book, by the way, uh, it's too bad there aren't. And there's no there are no there are no Catholic works in English that that uh, can hold a candle to the, these early Anglican productions. But Dryden is uh, Dryden has produced a, a, a masterpiece. And by the way, some of his other translations of Jubal and Ovid are also masterpieces that stand as models of perfect versification. So you, it's easy to get a hold of. You can get it virtually for nothing on the Internet. You can get old copies of a paperback for a dime. There are complete uh, editions of Dryden's poetry, not, not doesn't include his plays, from you know various uh, editions. Cambridge had one. You, you get them used for five or ten dollars. There's no excuse for not having the complete Dryden uh, on your shelf. It's certainly no ex- no excuse for not reading, uh, for failing to read uh, uh, Dryden's Aeneid. And uh, perhaps next time we'll even uh, I'll, I'll I'll quote from Dryden instead of from anything else. Now, what I want to get across, though, because we're, we're coming to an end, I, and uh, about Virgil's early career, it's the strength of this poem and of some passages later on in the Aeneid and in the Georgics, where people sincerely thought for, for over a thousand years 
that Virgil was a prophet of the coming of the of the Messiah, and that that this that this refers to the coming of Christ, that he didn't know it, most people would have argued. Virgil didn't know what he was saying. He was in a kind of trance, like like the Sybil or the or the or the uh, the prophetess at uh, at Delphi, who would you know smell these fumes and then start uttering gibberish, which then would be put into poetry by the by the assistants. So and 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 it was this was taken seriously throughout the throughout uh, Christian antiquity, the Middle Ages, and even much later, there were people who preferred uh, to believe that. May I keep an open mind? For example, if you ask me, did the Trojan War take place the way Homer describes it? I'd say, gee, I wasn't there. We, this is the only book we had. I, I feel the same way about speaking as, uh, just as a materialist skeptic. You know, if you read the Old Testament, is it true? I don't know. Uh, I do know that that's the, that's the only source we have. So why, quib, why, why, why try to reinvent things? And so why not believe that Virgil was possessed by something he, that he couldn't understand because the poem really, no matter how many hours, hundreds and thousands of hours of scholarship are expended upon this poem, it is still bizarre to think of a pagan writing about the Augustan Revolution and about the consulship of Asinius Pollio as if a wonderful child was about to be born and that child would transform the world. He would be. He would bring peace and plenty to the world and restore civilization. It is. A, he clearly had some kind of vision, and the vision is not purely practical, pragmatic, or political. I think the promise of that prophecy is a good place for us to end today's episode, Dr. Fleming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.